Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast. My name is Alan Stair. And I'm Donna Stair. This is the fourth and final season of our week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. Join us for this final season as we're getting into the music, the trivia, and the fun of WKRP. So, fellow babies, stay tuned and stay cool. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to another WKRP cast. This week, Mama is rattling some cages. What is our episode, Donna? We're going to be talking about The Consultant. The air date was December 30th, 1981. Written by Hugh Wilson, story editor, Lisa Levin. Executive story consultants, Steve Marshall and Dan Gunselman. Directed by Dolores Ferraro. Mother Carlson hires a radio doctor to evaluate the station. At first, Andy is relieved. The consultant is an old friend. Andy worries when this so-called radio doctor threatens to write a poor review if the station doesn't buy his services. This is the last episode of 1981. Last week, on December 23rd, the CBS programming suits made a good choice— they reran the Bah Humbug Christmas episode from last year. It finished the week at number 44. This week, we feel like we're back in dump territory. It's December 30th. The week between Christmas and New Year's was traditionally a very low-rated week for TV watching. People are gone, vacations, going to parties, shopping. Their schedules are not in regular week mode, so they don't tend to catch their favorite shows. CBS is running two new shows tonight. Both appear to be dumps. They've got a new episode of the almost-finished Mr. Merlin, followed by this first-run episode of WKRP. Over on ABC, WKRP is going up against a rerun of Greatest American Hero. In the 8 o'clock hour, CBS will beat Hero, but not by much. Believe it or not. (laughs) Over on NBC, they also have a rerun. This time, it's the very popular Real People. Amazingly, the Real People rerun wins the time slot, beating out the first-run episodes of Mr. Merlin and WKRP. That hurts. That really hurts. A rerun of Real People beat a brand new WKRP. WKRP finishes the week ranked number 41, only three notches higher than last week's rerun of Bah Humbug. I understand why Hugh Wilson said he was getting very tired in the fourth season. He was it's just, just exhausted. always a struggle. Always. We open this episode in Mama's house. We are in the living room when the double doors open, and Hirsch is leading Andy into the room. Yay, Hirsch! Very nice to see you again, Mr. Travis. Why, thank you, Hirsch. Please make yourself comfortable. Andy walks in and unbuttons his jacket. Hirsch turns to face Andy. Madam, we'll be making a rather pushy entrance momentarily. (laughs) 
Rather pushy. Hirsch asks Andy if he can get him anything. Andy tells him no thanks. Hirsch starts to leave, but then turns back to Andy. How is everything in the world of rock and roll? (laughs) Hirsch does a little wiggle as he says rock and roll. Andy tells him, "Eh, it's pretty good. Excellent. I trust the doors are doing well. (laughs) Well, they they broke up. Oh, I didn't know that. We get so little news around here. (laughs) We are so glad to have Carol Bruce back as Mama. And of course, we love Hirsch. The Hirsch-Mama interactions are always priceless. A note about Ian Wolfe and his incredible portrayal of Mama's long-suffering butler. This is Ian Wolfe's third of four total appearances on WKRP. In this one, he gets the most screen time and the most lines of any appearance. Enjoy this supersized helping of Hirsch. If you check the trivia about this episode on IMDb, there's an item saying this is Hirsch's second appearance on WKRP. Under the old air order, that would be correct. Since Michael Hernandez has identified the actual air order of the series, this item is no longer accurate. Hirsch debuted in A Simple Little Wedding. He was prominent in last week's Love, Exciting, and New, which we now know aired before The Consultant. Love, Exciting, and New was Hirsch's real second appearance on the show. Using actual air order, this is Hirsch's third appearance on WKRP. Fellow baby, somebody needs to get with IMDb. Now we're not only revising dates, we need to double-check the trivia. Hirsch, it sounds like, is a Doors fan, but he doesn't seem to have been keeping up with Doors news for a while. We've had Doors music on the show before. Make sure to check out the episode Fish Story for some extensive Doors background. A quick overview, the Doors were an American rock and roll band formed in Los Angeles in 1965. They were led by the weird, erratic, and supposedly brilliant Jim Morrison, who also provided the band's original lyrics. Morrison died in 1971. The band disbanded in 1973. Mama Carlson enters the room. She doesn't greet Andy, but she does have something to say to Hirsch. You call those eggs soft-boiled? Oh, did you enjoy your breakfast, madam? The coffee was like mud. Rather cool mud. Yes. Well, there's only so much one can do. (laughs) Hirsch looks at Andy, a bit of a smirk on his face. Would you like some cool mud, Mr. Travis? Travis tells Mama, no thank you. Oh no, please, I insist. I would like a witness to the fact that this man is attempting to poison me. Andy tells her, yes, coffee would be fine. Coffee. Right away, Hirsch. Oh, as fast as my little feet will carry me. (laughs) Hirsch scurries out of the room. Mama walks over by Andy. So, how are things in the world of rock and roll? Wasn't this the same question Hirsch asked? Mm -hmm. These two are more alike than they uh, want to admit. (laughs) They're like an old married couple. They've been together over 40 years. Man. Andy tells her... Pretty good. Mama picks up some papers from a desk and turns to Travis. I notice you have a knack for spending my money. (laughs) Mama hands an invoice to Andy. Andy looks at it. He tells her, 
they got the new lobby finished, and it's very impressive. And some long-suffering employees have received much-deserved raises. Mama takes the invoice back from Andy. And you, no doubt, feel very pleased with yourself about that. Santa Claus versus the Wicked Witch of the North. Andy tells her he's merely doing the job he feels he should be doing. Mama tells Andy not to be so modest. You kept the union out of my station in return for my money. Not for myself, for the station. Oh, yes, yes, for the station. Never, never, never for yourself. Mama mentioned being the Wicked Witch of the North. The Wicked Witch, the one we met in the 1939 movie The Wizard of Oz was from the West. We think Mama misspoke. If not, she is really into the lore of The Wizard of Oz. In Frank L. Baum's original 1900 novel, there was a good witch in the North. She had defeated the former Wicked Witch of the North named Mombi. We only hear about Mombi, we don't meet her, and we only hear about her in Baum's book, not in the movie. Glinda, played by Billy Burke in the movie, is the good witch who appears before Dorothy in the land of the Munchkins and tells her to head to Oz. Glinda is the good witch from the South. The wicked witches were from the West and the East. We never meet the wicked witch of the East because she's dead. Those are her feet that curl up under the house after Dorothy retrieves the ruby slippers. Oh, I hated that part of the movie. I always had to be sitting by my dad for that. It was too creepy, huh? (laughs) The Wicked Witch of the West is, of course, later killed by a bucket of water. Oops, sorry, spoiler alert for the 83-year-old Wizard of Oz. You might want to check that one out. Mama walks over to the couch and she sits down. She clasps her hands together and leans on her knees. Tell me, Mr. Travis, are you as nice as you seem to be? Andy looks at Mama for a moment. Then he asks, Mrs. Carlson, why am I here? Why, to discuss our mutual interest in the success of a radio station. I mean, the bigger my investment, the bigger my involvement. Mama is smiling at Andy. Of course, we would be delighted to have you participate more fully. That's a lie. Mama continues (laughs) to smile at Andy. Yeah, it's a big one. (laughs) Andy looks at Mama and asks her to just leave it to him, trust him. Mama tells Andy she has a lot of confidence in him, but trusts no one other than her own son. And I always trust him to do the wrong thing. (laughs) Which is a weird way to trust your son, but that's what she trusts. Andy, knowing Art well, smiles at this. Unless, of course, the subject is fish. Show my son a mackerel and his mind becomes a computer. Andy walks over to a chair and sits. He asks Mama if she wants to participate on a day-to-day basis. Mama tells him, no, of course not. She explains her business interests are too far flung for that. What I have done instead is hire the services of a professional radio consultant, a station doctor, I believe they're called. Andy's expression suddenly changes. He stands up. You can tell from his body language he's not pleased. Mama tells Andy, the man is from New York. Radio consultants, or a station doctor, as Mama called him, were becoming a huge part of the radio landscape in the late 1970s. The term formula is often used when talking about consultant programming. Basically, if a format works on one station, consultants try to sell the format to other stations. It's got a track record. They don't customize anything to a particular station. They are, instead, delivering a programming cookie cutter designed to work anywhere in the country. 
Consultant programming is calculated to deliver audience and profits. The music is tested and tracked. Songs are selected based on potential revenue and audience retention. Not, are they good? That never enters into it. Stations get regular song updates from the consultant so they know what to mix in and how often to play certain songs. DJs have no say in what they play when a station is programmed by a consultant. Radio consultants have been accused of making all radio sound the same, which they eventually did. Later, Mama's Radio Doctor is going to tell Andy he's programming 45 stations. Well, those 45 stations are all playing the same songs in the same mix. He's really only programming one station. Some consultants even provide program names like The Eagle or The Mix with station liners and pre-cut ID packages. This is Rock and Roll Radio. <laughs> XL102. Here we go. If you want modern rock, vote for the buzz. Play with the devil, die with the devil. Not before HKY. The result? The stations sound even more alike. Back at Mama's house, Hirsch comes in rolling a cart with a silver coffee pot and silver cups, sugar and creamer all sitting on a silver tray. Mama goes on. And I believe that he can evaluate WKRP with an unbiased eye. Mama looks at Hirsch, which brings us to... The line of the episode. Where have you been? <laughs> Mardi Gras, madam. <laughs> That got a roar out of the crowd. There's a pause, and then this wave rolls over him. Hirsch rolls the cart over in front of Mama and picks up the coffee pot. He bows toward Mama. May I pour? Yes. Have you a shovel? <laughs> I'll reach the card. Hirsch pours a cup and hands it to Mama. Uh, sugar? Hirsch, you've been with me 42 years. Have I ever once taken sugar in my coffee? Then cream? I take it black. I'll make a note of that. Hirsch pours a cup of coffee for Andy. <laughs> Those two together are just so much fun. I can't believe they haven't killed each other. Oh, I know. <laughs> Hirsch mentioned he'd been to Mardi Gras. He's a little early. Mardi Gras normally happens mid-February to early March. Mardi Gras is a French term that literally translates to Fat Tuesday. Mardi Gras is the last chance to really party, eat, drink, and go nuts before Ash Wednesday and the start of Lent. Also called Shrove Tuesday or Pancake Tuesday, Mardi Gras festivities happen all over the world. Here in the United States, New Orleans has made a name for themselves by throwing one of the largest Mardi Gras celebrations in the world. Mardi Gras in 2022 was on March 1st. Mark your calendar in 2023. It happens on February 21st. Andy is leaning on the fireplace mantle. He finally tells Mama his thoughts about her Radio doctor announcement. I'm not so sure that a consultant is a good idea. He asks Mrs. Carlson when the consultant is due in town. Oh, he's already here. He's been monitoring the station for several days. Ouch, no chance to prepare. Mm. 
Andy, his mouth hanging open, stares unbelievingly at Mrs. Carlson. Hirsch gives Andy his cup of coffee. Andy is frozen, eyes still locked on (laughs) Mrs. Carlson. Hirsch takes Andy's hand and places the cup and saucer in it. (laughs) This brings Andy back to life. Good, good, good. Mrs. Carlson tells Andy the consultant wants to see the station and meet everyone tomorrow. If that's convenient for you. I ought to be getting back to the station then, shouldn't I? I would think so. Mrs. Carlson smiles, very pleased with herself. Andy begins walking towards the door, kind of in a daze. Goodbye, Mrs. Carlson. Andy hands the untouched cup of coffee back to Hirsch. Hirsch, thank you so much for the coffee. Catch you later. Please do. (laughs) Andy leaves the room. Mama, ever the manipulator, chuckles. I believe I have put the cat. Among the pigeons. Yes, ma'am. Mama takes a few sips from her cup of coffee. Why, Hirsch, this coffee's delicious. Mm-hmm. That's because we were having a guest, madam. <laughs> Mama gives Hirsch a stern look. When it's just you and me, I prepared a little differently. <laughs> Hirsch leaves the room, chuckling as he goes. Mardi Gras, madam. And as Hirsch heads back to the kitchen, we head into our theme. WKRP in Cincinnati. We come back from commercial break to Mr. Carlson's office. Les is sitting on the couch. Herb is standing next to Mr. Carlson, who is sitting at his desk, tying fishing flies by hand. And would you look at Herb? I believe it's time! Herb Darling, fashion alert. We've seen this plaid jacket before. It is a classic. It's a very bold with shades of blue, gray, and white. There's a maroon collar and maroon pocket flaps. His dress shirt is white with light blue vertical stripes. His pants are a little brighter blue than what's in the coat. He accessorizes the whole mess with his signature white belt and shoes. That coat is one we've seen several times before, but every time he shows up in that coat, it takes my breath away. Herb is trying hard to sell Mr. Carlson on a new segment for Les. Don't you see? It is perfect. For a week, Les does a special report. Les Nessman takes a look at prostitution. Three times a day, eight, two, and four, Hooker City. Now, is that great or am I losing my touch? (laughs) Hooker City. (laughs) Mr. Carlson begins to object, but Herb cuts him off, telling him television stations, they do it all the time. Every time it's a rating period, they pick some lurid subject like prostitution or loose housewives. Les Nesman takes a look at Loose Housewives. It's a dream come true. So Art looks over to the couch where Les is sitting and asks what he thinks. And now a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye Newshawk Award winner, Les Nesman. This is the Les Nesman Bandage Report. Now here's Donna Stair with her report about Les Nesman. Left side of face, just in front of his left ear. This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cobb award-winning journalist, Les Nessman. Les tells Carlson what he had in mind. I was thinking about doing something on the state legislature. Herb walks over to Les and sits on the arm of the couch. Break my heart, Les. State legislature doesn't care about the state legislature. Herb 
mentioned how TV stations do sensational stories during a ratings period. Also called sweeps, these were months where Nielsen would do extensive audience measurements. Sweeps would happen in February, May, July, and November. Sweeps determined what a station could charge for spots in the upcoming quarter. Although the measurements were supposed to be unbiased, stations realized they could affect ratings in sweeps months. TV news would do exactly the kinds of stories Herb is mentioning. If it was salacious, shocking tawdry, or a little bit naughty, it wound up in news reports during sweeps. A story like Loose Housewives in the Suburbs, What Hubby Doesn't Know Won't Hurt Him Tonight at 10, would deliver a definite bump in audience for the 10 o'clock news. There's a knock on the door and Andy comes in. Andy asks Mr. Carlson if they could talk. Carlson says, you bet. Herb stands. I suppose you want us to leave as usual. Les begins to stand. No, Herb. I want you to stay right here. Herb is smiling, thinking he's in on a Travis meeting. Yes, sir. Herb sits back down, and Mr. Carlson walks to the door. Okay, Andy, what's up? (laughs) Carlson and Andy walk out into the lobby, shutting Carlson's office door behind them. Herb and Les look at each other. They're still sitting on the big guy's couch. Loose housewives. We cut to Mr. Carlson and Andy entering the lobby. Andy turns to Art. Your mother has hired a consultant to look at our operation. Carlson does a low whistle and asks Andy when. Well, Andy says he's in town now. Carlson tells Andy not to panic. He knows what to do about this. Next week, I'll just take a little vacation, take Herb and Les with me. Maybe Johnny, too. You can never tell what he's going to do. Well, Andy tells him he can't just clear out the station. Why not? Just bring him here, introduce him to Jennifer. She'll wink at him a couple of times and he goes home. <laughs> Listen, what if he is a she? Well, then you wink at him. Mr. Carlson begins pacing nervously. He tells Travis to handle it. Travis, you think of something. I, I, just make everything work out beautifully. The door to Mr. Carlson's office opens and Herb sticks his head out. Can we come out now? Mr. Carlson tells him to come on out. Les begins talking. You know, Mr. Carlson, I've been thinking... Mr. Carlson walks briskly past them and goes back into his office. Les and Herb begin to follow. And I think... <laughs> the door to Mr. Carlson's office slams in Les's face. Herb takes Les by the arm and leads him to the bullpen door. Come on, Les, let's do some brainstorming. Les looks at Andy as Herb is dragging him out of the lobby. Andy, I don't want to do the prostitution thing. Come on. Andy, deep in thought, suddenly looks up. What? (laughs) Jennifer walks into the lobby. She says hi to Andy. Jennifer picks up a message for Andy. A man called for you this morning. He said he is a radio consultant. Andy takes the paper. Jennifer drinks her coffee as Andy stands behind her reading the message. Hey, I know this guy. He used to work for me in Albuquerque. Oh, thank you. Thank you for everything. And he's looking up at the ceiling, his arms spread wide as he says this. You're welcome. <laughs> Jennifer is smiling, looking quite pleased with herself. I don't want to do the prostitution thing. We transition to a hotel suite where we see a guy talking on the phone. He's sitting in a chair with his feet up on the glass coffee table, one hand holding the phone to his ear, the other holding a glass of wine. He's wearing a shiny, silky-looking purple shirt with khaki pants. He has a purple tie loosely tied around his neck that's under his shirt collar. His shirt is unbuttoned so you can see a gold chain resting in his chest hairs. Everything about his look says sleazeball, but he's a hip and successful sleazeball. Postcard. 
No, honey, send a telex. And then call Fred Joyner. There's a loud banging on the door. He tells the person on the other end of the line to hold on. Then he goes to open the door. Fred Joyner sounded familiar, but maybe not. We figured Norris was name-dropping, but we couldn't find anything about a guy named Fred Joyner who had involvement with radio, programming, or Ohio. Norris said he wanted to send his message via Telex. You've probably never heard of Telex, but this was cutting-edge stuff for the time. Telex was a network of teleprinters that allowed for two-way text messages. This is going way back in the dark ages of text communication. The first Telex system was invented in Germany starting in 1926. It was built and launched by 1933. After 1945, Telex technology spread around the world. Telex machines looked like a cross between a dot matrix printer and an electric typewriter. A telex operator could type into one machine and have his message print on a connected machine across the country. Telex machines were connected over a dedicated network separate from phone lines. Telex lines worked more like telegraph lines. Germans also invented tape, audio tape. Oh, they did. They It was their invention. We discovered it actually in spy outposts where they were doing taping of signals right at the front lines. They had these little kiosks set up with tape machines in them. We captured these places, had never seen tape before, sent these machines back home so that our guys could figure out what it was. But the Germans had invented audio tape. Interesting. We, we were recording at the time on wire was what we recorded to, and it sounded horrible. Each telex machine had its own number, like a phone number. Telex machines could transfer text at about 50 baud, or around 60 words per minute. Messages could also be delivered to multiple machines at once. Western Union used telex to transfer telegrams over long distances. Because telex transfers were pretty slow, Telex operators started using abbreviated English and initials for phrases. They were the first texters. Telex machines were mostly replaced by fax machines in the 1980s, then, of course, email and cellular texting. Telex systems are still in use today, but today's Telex works over radio signals instead of dedicated phone lines. Radio Telex allows for the transfer of printed messages to extremely remote locations like submarines out in the middle of the ocean. Norris flings open the door. Hey! Andy? There's no one there. Suddenly, Andy jumps into the doorway. <laughs> this causes the man to scream and almost fall over backwards. Andy is smiling as he apologizes. <laughs> Norris, I'm sorry. How you doing? Good. How you been, man? Norris tells him he's been good. Then, pointing to the kitchenette, he tells Andy there's whiskey and wine in there. Ah, uh, you got any beer? In the fridge? Well, you want one? I'm drinking wine. Excuse me. Norris goes back to the phone and finishes his conversation. Norris is being played by David Clennon. You probably know David from his 22 episodes as Miles on the 1987 genre-defining drama 30-something. David is a political activist known for turning down roles based on the message and even the politics of the production company. David has 136 performer credits on his IMDb profile, but those include recurring roles on multiple shows. He was on eight episodes of The Ghost Whisperer, 
34 episodes of Almost Perfect, 45 episodes of the 2001 series The Agency, and so many more. David also does movies. He's appeared in four Best Picture nominees. His very first movie role was in 1973's The Paper Chase. David was born in 1943 in Waukegan, Illinois. As of this recording, he's still working with a movie currently in post-production. There's a great continuity error happening in this scene. When Norris finishes his phone call, he sets the phone on the window ledge. It is visible in the background of every shot of the two of them on the couch. We know WKRP shoots at least two versions of each scene, sometimes more, and they let scenes run like they're doing a play. When Norris hangs up the phone in one take, he sets it on the ledge with the dial facing the camera. In another take, he sets it with the back of the phone facing the camera. Nobody caught it. Keep an eye on the phone. It keeps jumping back and forth. In one of the cuts, it's sideways. Oh, my. <laughs> it's forward and back and forward and backward, and then sideways, and then forward and back and forth. So, yeah, it's fun to watch that jump. Andy walks towards Norris with his hand extended, telling Norris he looks great. They begin to reminisce. Last time I saw you, you had hair down to your waist. Hey, we all did. Didn't you have a ponytail? Uh, no, it was kind of a page boy thing. Laughing, they clink their drinks together and take a sip. Andy tells Norris he's reading big things about him in the trades. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Mr. Big. A consultant. A programmer. Yeah, I'm uh, programming about 45 stations. Now, can you believe that? Norris asks Andy... How his station's doing. Andy tells Norris it's good. They both walk over to the couch and sit down. I figured with you running it. Norris asks Andy who he has at the station. Now, oh, well, there's a couple of guys you might have heard of. Johnny Carvella. Professor Sunshine. Now, now it's Dr. Johnny Fever. Norris chuckles and says he likes that. Andy tells him he also has Venus Flytrap. Oh, yeah, the guy with the gong from New Orleans. Andy tells Norris Venus doesn't use a gong much anymore. Hmm, he was using it in Jennifer and the Will just a couple weeks ago. Yes, he was. <laughs> Is Andy embarrassed about Venus's gong? Norris says he thought Venus was soft jazz and a lot of chatter. No, it's all rock, uh, very little talk. Well, we got some talk, uh, probably more than... A lot of stations. Uh, little talk. <laughs> Andy is nodding his head as he says this. Less talk, more rock was becoming the phrase that pays in the early 80s. Unless you were doing all talk or personality radio, consultants were advising DJs to just shut up. Norris asks Andy their overall in the market. Andy tells him... Ten. There are only 23 stations in the market. AM and FM. Norris is not impressed. Andy tells Norris he thought he would have checked into this before he came to Cincinnati. Let's take a quick look at today's Cincinnati radio market. In 2022, there are 23 stations with call letters licensed in the city of Cincinnati. There are 75 total stations close enough to Cincinnati to be considered within listening range. 22 stations in the market are metered by Arbitron. There are 43 total stations in the 13-county Cincinnati metropolitan area. Cincinnati is the 30th largest radio market in the U.S., with just over 1.8 million listeners 12 years old and up. Norris pats Andy on the arm. I'm just asking. Mm -hmm. You've been uh, monitoring our station. Norris stands. He tells Andy, yeah, a couple of days. 
Norris goes over to the kitchenette to get himself some more wine. Andy wants to know what Norris thinks. That newsman of yours, has he got some sort of problem with pigs? <laughs> Pig problem. It's that obvious. Even in just a couple of days, it's that obvious. Andy laughs and stands up. No, what he does, he likes to kid around a lot. You know, puts a little humor into his broadcast, talks a lot about pigs, uh, mispronounces words on purpose, but he's a pro. And I got to admit, I've never quite met anyone like him. And you know that attitude about less, Andy's saying he jokes around? I've always thought that's how they should market less, doing it intentionally for the laugh instead of him really being that clueless. Norris asks how many salesmen he has. Andy tells him one. Norris sounds surprised. Andy says he's on a tight budget. Andy walks over to the table and sits. One guy. He must be working 24 hours a day. Oh, yeah. I'm telling you, Herb is going to kill himself one of these Norris goes back to the couch and sits. He looks at Andy. Andy, you got problems here. I can tell that just listening. Andy asks him what he means. Norris tells him fever in the morning is wrong. Norris believes Johnny is best late night. And he's playing solid gold. That's crazy. No, he plays just a little gold. Andy, the man is stuck in 1962. What is he, Ray Charles' uncle or something? (laughs) Andy laughs, then walks over to the couch. He tells Norris he understands there are problems. But uh, you and I, we go back a little bit. I don't think I have to bring up the fact that... uh, I know, yeah, you gave me my first job in radio. Norris puts his drink down on the table. He tells Andy, why don't they just relax and talk about this later? Want to do a line or two? Hmm... Andy tells him no. Uh, I don't do coke. Norris tells Andy this is a small town he's got here. Oh, there's plenty of coke around this town. I just don't like uh, sticking money up my nose so I can feel lousy later. Norris asks Andy if he's mad at him. Andy tells him he isn't mad. I just don't seem like the same guy. Mm, Norris looks at Andy. Are you jealous? I'm not jealous. I want to know. I want to know what you think. I don't like your sound. Your format is all over the road. i got to be honest with you. Andy gives him a sarcastic thanks. There's a beat, then Andy tells Norris he'll see him back at the station. Norris is surprised Andy is leaving so soon. Hey, whoa, where are you going? No, no, i got to go clean off the top of the desk, clean out the trash cans, get everything in order for your inspection. Andy heads towards the door to leave. Norris is following Andy. Andy, if you want a good report, I'll give you a good report. Good God, I haven't changed that much. You're a friend. I came to see you anyhow. I wanted to ask you to subscribe to my service. There it is. Yeah. I don't want to inspect you. Andy tells Norris uh, they don't use the service. Norris, you want to know the truth? The jocks program the music. What? Yeah. And what they don't do, I do. Norris can't believe what he's hearing. Andy, nobody is programming their own music anymore. We are. And that's the way it's going to stay. Hey... You won't be nice to me. How can I be nice to you? Andy looks at Norris. Then he turns to leave. As he is walking to the door, he tells Norris he will see him Thursday at the station. Andy opens the door. Norris tells him he wants to come tomorrow. Andy points to his mouth. Thursday. Read my lips. Andy leaves. Norris yells after him. What are you going to do? Fix a station in a day? Norris goes back into his suite and closes the door. The screen goes black as we head to a commercial break. I think it's kind of funny if you look at it. This scene 
is really kind of downbeat. It doesn't have a lot of laughs, but there's some drama. And I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's fun to watch. It's kind of stressful. It's it, There's stress and there's drama and there's emotion. There aren't any laughs. And it's so funny to go from that kind of somber scene to just the red line crazy that we're about to go into. Mm-hmm. It's funny, the two different tones of this episode. That newsman of yours. You got some sort of problem with pigs? We come back from commercial in the bullpen. Johnny is asleep at the DJ's desk, and it looks dark. He's leaned back with his feet up when Andy comes walking in. Andy flips on the lights and asks what he's doing here. I was just uh, waiting for Venus to get off the air. It's going to fix my refrigerator. Andy asks Johnny, what's wrong with his fridge? I don't know. It broke down a couple of months ago. (laughs) Oh, a couple of months. Johnny looks at Andy. He can see something is on his mind. Johnny asks, what's the problem? Andy begins telling Johnny what's going on when the door to the studio hallway opens and Venus walks in. Hey, how you doing? Now, let's take a look at Venus's vibin' threads. Venus is wearing a silky sky blue tunic-styled shirt with a matching silky scarf tied around his neck. The cuffs on each arm are folded up once. Andy tells them there's this guy in town. A radio doctor, a consultant. He's working for Mother Carlson. Well, that's it for us, then. Andy tells them his name is Norris Breeze and asks if they've heard of him. Oh, yeah. Andy goes on to explain he's in town as a consultant. But what he really wants to do is sell us his service. Johnny and Venus are not happy to hear this. We buy his service, he will give us a good report. No services, please. Andy confesses he thinks Norris is going to kill them with this report. Come on, you think Mama is going to fire her own son? There's a beat, then... What am I saying? Of course she would. <laughs> Johnny turns back to look at Andy. Don't you think we could get everybody to shape up at least for one day? Another beat, then... What am I saying? Andy tells them they've got to do something. Venus voices his concern. Travis, it doesn't matter what we do. We don't buy the man's service. He's going to give us a bad report. That's the deal. That's how it works. Andy, looking concerned, nods his head in agreement. We transition to the lobby where Jennifer is just hanging up the phone. We don't get a cue as to what day it is. No, I'm sorry. He'll be in conference all afternoon. Thank you for calling. She looks at her watch, then at the main door just as Norris Breeze walks in. Ah, it must be Thursday. Norris is wearing a short, muted green kid leather jacket over a dress shirt and tie that are also muted green. He's carrying a briefcase. Strap in, fellow babies. This is going to get crazy. Norris's tie is squared off at the end. It doesn't go to a point like a traditional necktie. It's one of those knit ties that looked like they were crocheted out of yarn. For some reason, they were very popular in the 80s. You remember those? I remember those. A lot of the, oh, that was when I first started teaching. And a lot of the guys were wearing, oh, the guy had, teachers were wearing those at that time. I had a couple of those. I had a cream colored tie, one of those knit ties. That thing was dirty within seconds of me putting <laughs> it on. He sees Jennifer and he perks up. Well, hello. I'm Norris Breeze. Jennifer puts on her best smile. She opens her eyes wide. Oh, Mr. Breezy. (laughs) We've been expecting you. (laughs) (laughs) Suddenly she's talking in this hilarious baby doll voice. 
Her stance changes completely. When she stands, she has her shoulders up and her hands folded in front of her. She pushes out her chest as she begins pointing around the lobby. We have all kinds of chairs. There's one over there, and there's another one over there. And then, no, that's a clock. (laughs) (laughs) And hey, we found out where the grandfather clock went. It's still there. It's just downstage from Jennifer's desk. If you look at the long shot when Norris walks in, you get a glimpse of it. And I think Jennifer shines oh, in this. Man. the you rest know, of this episode. She kills this. Jennifer and Bailey. Yes. Bailey yes. is a riot. When we get to Bailey's scene, it it's the best thing. That and when she was the tramp in rumors are the two yeah. real Jan Smithers showpieces. But coming up, yeah, Jennifer and Bailey are the stars of this one. They, they really get to show their stuff. Jennifer is doing a bouncy walk, taking <laughs> tiny little steps. Her back is arched. Her chest is out. She walks around the lobby talking to Mr. Breezy. <laughs> Norris sits as he tells Jennifer he's there to see Mr. Carlson and Mr. Travis. Well, Jennifer moves her arms like she's a choir director telling the choir to stand. Well, then get up. And let's go see them. <laughs> Jennifer takes baby steps with her knees kind of drawn together. She is bouncing as she walks over to Mr. Carlson's office door. Mr. Breeze follows behind Jennifer. You're very attractive, but... Uh... <laughs> Jennifer turns to look at him, putting her hands up to cover her mouth. She scrunches up her shoulders and giggles. It's like she's 12 years old. And that's not the way the real Jennifer would have reacted to that. <laughs> Jennifer opens Mr. Carlson's door and ushers Norris into his office. Mr. Carlson, look, it's Mr. Breezy. Uh-huh. Norris walks over to Mr. Carlson. Breeze, uh, Norris Breeze. Mr. Carlson is behind his desk wearing a green banker's visor. He's reading from a piece of paper as he punches the keys of a calculator very quickly. Pointing to the couch with his pencil, Mr. Carlson asks Norris to sit down. In this somewhat exasperated, no-nonsense voice, Carlson says he'll be with him in a minute. (laughs) Norris steps towards the couch. Jennifer Wiggle walks over to him. Jennifer continues the airhead act. She gets right up in Norris's face, wiggling all over as she talks. What exactly is it that you do, Mr. Breezy? I consult with station owners on how to improve their profits. <laughs> Jennifer, as her hands clasped behind her arched back, swang her breast back and forth right in front of Norris. Norris is trying to impress her with his job description. I also program all the music for 45 rock and roll stations. You see, I listen to How the music. How nice. You know, I think I'll just go get everybody some coffee. <laughs> leaves the office right in the middle of his explanation and closes the door. I love it. He's just standing there kind of like, uh, what just <laughs> um, happened? Um, um. <laughs> Norris approaches Mr. Carlson, who is still punching numbers into the calculator like mad. Motioning to the closed door, Norris starts to ask Mr. Carlson about Jennifer. The door opens and Herb walks in. At least we think it's Herb. <laughs> you hear the audience moan. They think Herb's going to blow everything. And whoa, it's time. Herb Darlick, sharp-dressed man. Herb 
is wearing a very conservative suit and it looks great. He has on navy blue pants, a white dress shirt with a navy tie, and a blue gray jacket with a white pocket square. Looking good, Herb. Herb walks up to Mr. Carlson's desk. He's holding a piece of paper in his hand. All right, here's a contract on the Rayco drugstore. Just- Mr. Carlson tells Herb to put the contract on the pile. Got to get some sleep, just an hour's worth. Norris is observing <laughs> all of this very closely. Herb, have you met uh, Norris Breeze, the consultant? Herb shuts the office door and turns to Norris. They shake hands. Herb, still clasping Norris's hand, addresses Mr. Carlson. Uh, maybe we ought to talk to him while we've got him alone. Mr. Carlson turns his head to Herb. Right. The level of competence on display here is a little unnerving. (laughs) Who are these people? Norris seems to be buying it. But you're afraid somebody's going to blow it at any moment. What I thought of when Herb was saying, I've got to get an hour of sleep. Remember in Real Families? Kids, is Daddy a hard worker? Yeah. How do you know? Sometimes he works so hard, he comes home for lunch and sleeps all day. He sleeps all day. That's right. No, that's impossible. And see, Herb's out making sales calls. That's right. He goes yep. home every afternoon for nap nap time. Yeah, because he just can't make it through that <laughs> afternoon. It's just a little too much for him. The door to the office opens and Jennifer bounces in. Hi, I'm back. <laughs> Where's the coffee? Uh oh. <laughs> oh, sweet. Announcement. <laughs> <laughs> so Jennifer, wide eyed, turns and closes the door as she leaves. A quick note about the voice Jennifer is using. Oh. According to WKRP blogger and researcher Jamie Weinman, this character came about because Lonnie Anderson had done the same voice in the mid 70s, possibly on an episode of The Love Boat. Hugh Wilson loved the voice and was looking for a way to work it into an episode of WKRP. No surprise, this Hugh written episode allows Lonnie to go full metal airhead. She kills it! Norris asked Herb what it was he was saying. Oh, uh, we've got to get a programming service in here like yours. Really? Really. I mean, our, our format's a mess. Travis really doesn't know what he wants. Right. Herb is interrupted as the door opens and Andy walks in. Oh, hiya, Norris. Meeting the gang, are you? Yes, I am. Herb tells them all he has to get going. He shakes hands with Norris. Norris, it's been real. I'm sorry we couldn't talk more. No problemo. <laughs> Uh-oh. Andy shoots Herb a look. Problem. <laughs> nice meeting you. Don't forget what I said. Right. Oh. Okay, that was close. Shoo. Herb opens the door to leave. Jennifer is standing right there. Herb does not acknowledge Jennifer. Instead, she leans towards Herb, starts fiddling with his tie. Oh! Herbie Werby takes her wrists and moves her hands away. He fixes his tie. Jennifer, please, all right? He's all business. Herb leaves. Jennifer bounces on into the office. Would anybody like some coffee? She can't stand still. She is constantly wiggling and swinging back and forth. Mr. Carlson tells Jennifer, no thanks on the coffee. Coming up. Jennifer leaves in a cloud of dits. (laughs) Oh, she's so funny. You know what it reminds me of? It's the Gracie Allen. Yes, yes. That smart, dumb thing where, you know, she's talking past what's going on and kind of having her own little thing going on (laughs) with the coffee. Uh Uh-oh. 
Moving to the bullpen, Andy's ushering Norris through the glass doors. Before we get into the bullpen, we've got a new poster in the hall, which means it's time for a bullpen poster watch. Yay! The poster on the wall directly through the bullpen door is a promo for the second studio album by American punk metal band, The Plasmatics. It was called Beyond the Valley of 1984. If you look closely, you can just see Wendy O. Williams with her breasts bare and nipples covered by crossed strips of electrical tape. (laughs) It was her signature look. This album was recorded at the Ranch Recording Studio in New York and released in May of 1981. Williams is credited with vocals and playing Chainsaw. You were a big Plasmatics fan in college, right? You had oh, all their yeah. albums. Yeah, yeah. It's right next to James Taylor. And <laughs> James Taylor bred the Plasmatics. That's what was on your shelf. Overdubs were actually done on this album using an electric chainsaw. The album spent nine weeks on the Billboard album chart, peaking at number 142. There is an audience out there for this stuff. No hits, but Pig is a Pig and Sex Junkie are considered standout tracks. This is for all you who don't get enough. It's called Sex Junkie. This poster that's in the hallway is somewhat rare. Collectorsposters.com lists this one at $125, but they are currently sold out. As Norris and Andy enter, we see Bailey sitting at her desk playing with a piece of paper in kind of a slow and dreamy way. This is Bailey Corners here. She's in charge of traffic, continuity, promotions, and uh, some news reporting. Norris looks at Bailey. Hello. Hey. (laughs) It appears... Bailey may be high on something. Andy leads Norris over to Les's desk. Let's see what Les Messman's up to. They walk over to Les, who's on the phone. Well, Ben Bradley at the Washington Post is a good man. Well, sure, he makes some mistakes, but he's a good man. As Andy and Norris are waiting for Les to get off the phone, Bailey gets up from her desk, holding the piece of paper high in the air. She floats by, smiling at Norris. She dreamily waves the paper back and forth. Norris points at Bailey. She does traffic and continuity? Andy tells him, yeah. I'd like to speak with her. Andy puts a hand on Norris's shoulder. Okay, she's really kind of shy. Norris insists on speaking to Bailey. Alone. And he winks at Norris and leaves the bullpen. Les mentioned Ben Bradley at the Washington Post saying he makes some mistakes. This is a very topical reference. Ben Bradley was the legendary editor of the Washington Post from 1965 through 1991. He was instrumental in the publication of the Pentagon Papers, and he's the man who was managing and directing Woodward and Bernstein during the investigation and reporting of the Watergate scandal. In 1981, Bradley had been implicated in a scandal involving Post reporter Janet Cook. Cook had won the 1981 Pulitzer Prize for a story about an eight-year-old heroin addict entitled Jimmy's World. It ran in September of 1980. It was a beautifully written, gut-wrenching description of the life of an eight-year-old heroin addict living on the mean streets of Washington, D.C. Unfortunately, or 
fortunately for Jimmy, I guess, it was entirely fiction. She made it up, although she would later claim sources had told her about a boy like Jimmy. She never met him. There was no proof of any eight-year-old heroin addict anywhere in Washington, D.C. Mayor Marion Barry, who was shocked by the report, organized an unsuccessful citywide search for the boy after the story was published. Early on, Cook stuck with her claim it was true. Managing editor Bob Woodward and executive editor Bradley backed their reporter. They submitted the story for the Pulitzer, and it won. After Cook accepted the award, a former employer contacted the Post. It seems Ms. Cook had inflated or completely made up several of her academic credentials. After being confronted with these errors, she was questioned again about the Jimmy story. She admitted it was fabricated. Cook would return the Pulitzer, the only person in history to do so. Bradley would come under fire for his mismanagement of Cook and his failure to verify her sources for such an important story. Sure, he makes some mistakes, but he's a good man. Bradley personally apologized to Mayor Barry and the Washington, D.C. chief of police for the fabrication and the embarrassment it had caused the city. Cook was, of course, forced to resign. Remember this story, fellow babies. It's the basis for the episode Dear Liar, still to come in season four. Bailey is now sitting at Herb's desk. She's smiling vacantly at Norris as he approaches. Hi. Bailey nods her head slowly and flashes Norris the peace sign. Hi. You enjoy your work here? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You uh, ever do any drugs? When? (laughs) Like on the job? Bailey gives a spaced out smile to Norris and asks him to come over and sit down. She motions for him to sit on the DJ's desk. Sit down. I want to tell you something. That is the best answer to the question, ever do any drugs? When? When? (laughs) (laughs) Norris sits. He looks at Bailey. She stares back at him. What? What? You're going to tell me something. Oh, I don't think so. (laughs) Norris nods his head, then speaks slowly to her. You control the paperwork at the station. Oh, yeah. If you have any paper, you just bring it to me. (laughs) I would also love some (laughs) M&Ms. Bailey is really jonesing for some chocolate. If you've been living in the basement of a nice old Amish couple for the last 80 years, you've maybe never heard of M&M's. Otherwise, you've probably both seen and sampled their delicious little buttons of chocolate. Yes, M&M's celebrated 80 years in 2021. The M's stand for Forrest Mars, son of the Mars Candy Company founder, Fred Mars, and Bruce Murray, who was the son of Hershey's chocolate president, William F.R. Murray. These guys knew chocolate. Forrest had seen the British Smarties pellets carried by soldiers during the Spanish Civil War. Coating chocolate candies with a hard pan sugar shell kept the chocolate from melting in warm climates. Murray and Mars pitched their invention to the U.S. Army during World War II. 
M&Ms made with Hershey's chocolate were sold exclusively to the military during the war years. Once those soldiers returned home, they wanted more M&Ms. Manufacturing increased after the war. Copycats were everywhere. If you wanted the original, you had to look for the M on every piece of candy. The M's were printed in black starting in 1950. They changed that to white in 1954. Peanut M&M's were introduced in 1954, and originally they only came in tan. The original color lineup was red, yellow, violet, green, and brown. Violet was dropped for tan in the late 1940s. Tan was replaced by blue in 1995. Colors and flavors have changed over the years, but the original milk chocolate filling remains the biggest seller. Oh, and there's no truth to the rumor the original M&M candies have different flavors. There is no flavoring in the candy shell. They all taste like chocolate. But what about those green M&Ms? Did you well, ever hear no, about we, those? That's a whole other podcast there. <laughs> I would also love some M&Ms. <laughs> Les hangs up the phone and walks over to Norris. Mr. Breeze, Les Nessman. I understand you find my news reports unusual, humorous. Les is looking at Norris like he's ready for a confrontation. Les is probably the wild card in this whole opposite day scam. Will he blow it? Norris begins to speak when suddenly Les sticks out his hand. Thank you very much. It's a rock station, so I enjoy kidding around. Unless it's hard news. Then, of course, I go for it. Excuse me. Les leaves the bullpen through the door to the studio. It's probably best if there are no follow-up questions for Mr. Nessman. You never know when he's going to break bad. I thought he did really well with, oh, that, yes. with that one but little I was thing. holding my breath the oh, whole time. But I was glad he got out of there. He made it. Bailey is still sitting at Herb's desk playing with her hair. <laughs> <laughs> and she's kind of spinning around in Herb's chair. N-E-S-T-L-E-S, Nestle's makes the very best job. <laughs> Bailey puts her palms together. Then on the word chocolate, she makes her hands say the word. She opens her hands as if they were singing. Bailey smiles and giggles at Norris. Barful. <laughs> remember that guy? The dog. Yeah, remember that guy? Norris turns away from Bailey and heads out the door that leads to the studio hallway. Bailey mentioned Farfel, the dog, who made it big in the Nestle's commercials from the 50s and 60s. Do you remember that guy? <laughs> remember that guy? Farfel was not created to sing the jingle. He already existed. Farfel was created by ventriloquist Jimmy Nelson. Nelson had a human dummy named Danny O'Day. One night in 1950, during a show in Wichita, Kansas, a patron left a stuffed dog on the piano next to the stage. Towards the end of his set, Nelson picked it up and improvised a low voice for the dog. The audience loved it. Nelson commissioned a puppet and named it Farfel. Farfel is a Jewish pasta made from egg noodle. Nelson had seen the name on restaurant menus when he worked the Catskills. He liked the sound of it for his new partner. Farfel became such a hit for Nelson, the act wound up on the radar of the Nestle's marketing department. They wanted Danny O'Day to sing the newly written jingle, then have Farfel say the last word. Did you see Bailey's slap there at the end? 
it was Farfel's accidental signature. In an audition in front of the Nestle marketing executives, Nelson was so nervous his hand got sweaty. At the end of the word chocolate, his thumb slipped off the mouth trigger and Farfel's jaws snapped shut with a loud thwack. It was a horrible technical error for a ventriloquist, but the marketing executives loved it. They loved it so much, they had Nelson do it the same way on every commercial for 10 years, from 1955 through 1965. Chocolate. It is also possible the name Farfel is sounding familiar to you for another reason. In the third season episode of Seinfeld called The Dog, Jerry winds up caring for a nightmare dog named Farfel. Jerry. Huh? How you feeling? Would you, would you take care of Farfel? Farfel? It's his dog. We're landing in Chicago to get him to a hospital. The name was Larry David's idea, inspired both by his Jewish roots and the Nestle's jingle. Norris opens the door to the studio hallway and stops short. We can hear Papa's Got a Brand New Bag by James Brown going out over the air. Norris pauses, then begins to go back into the bullpen. The camera moves to give us a look at what Norris was seeing. Venus has Johnny up (laughs) against the studio door. He's gripping Johnny's jacket collar and has a curved knife up by his neck. When Norris enters from the bullpen, Venus turns and gives him a really menacing, don't even think about it, look. It's very threatening. Norris closes the door a bit, but he's still peeking at the scene. Venus lets go of Johnny's jacket. He smooths Johnny's shirt with the knife and backs away. He points at Johnny several times like a warning, then walks down the hall. The song we're hearing on the monitors is a pivotal landmark in the career of James Brown. Brown both wrote and performed Papa's Got a Brand New Bag as a two-part single in 1965. With its stinging horns and a ringing guitar riff, Brand New Bag is recognized as the song that introduced the genre of funk to the world. It was Brown's first top 10 hit, peaking at number eight. It would win Brown his first ever Grammy for Best Rhythm and Blues Recording. Papa's Got a Brand New Bag is listed at number 71 on the Rolling Stone list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Okay, now that Bad Venus is cleared out with that knife, we can (laughs) take a minute to scan the hallway. It's time for a hallway poster watch. Yay! There are several things we've already seen. Ian Hunter is still on the angled wall. Carly Simon's torch poster still down there through the door at the end of the hall. The pretenders have moved to the back of the door going into the bullpen. We do have a couple of new things to check out. In that space to the left of the bullpen door, we've got a large promo for the car's fourth studio album, Shake It Up. Shake It Up, both the album and the single, were released in November of 1981. The single, written by Rick Ocasek, would become one of the group's most popular songs. It peaks at number four on the Billboard Hot 100. 
Since You're Gone wouldn't make the top 40, stopping at number 41 on the Hot 100. Under the Cars poster is a strip that says Midnight Star Standing Together. Midnight Star was an American funk group formed at Kentucky State University in 1976. They would have a string of R&B hits in the 1980s. This 1981 Solar Records release will hit number 54 on the Billboard R&B chart. Johnny, not saying a word, begins backing into the studio as Venus is leaving. Andy comes through the door at the end of the hallway, sees Venus, and he backs away to let Venus pass. He like smashes against the <laughs> hall door or the hallway wall. Andy passes Venus like it's a common occurrence when he sees Norris standing outside the bullpen door. Oh, hiya, Norris. Uh, what do you want to see now? Your mother. My mother? Carlson's mother. Andy turns to lead Norris down the hallway. Suddenly, Andy gets a concerned look on his face, and you can tell he's worried about possibly running into bad Venus. Andy motions for Norris to go back through the bullpen. We transition to Mama's house. Norris is handing Mother Carlson a piece of paper. Norris walks over to the couch. We see Andy sitting there. He seems to be nervously playing with the cuffs on his shirt. I may move on to the next point. A station should have a sound that is consistent. And this is achieved simply by playing the same basic records over and over again. Mr. Travis knows this, but for some reason he's not doing it. Why, Mr. Travis? Oh, no, just sort of worked out that way. And he's doing his best aw shucks performance, but there's just a hint of a smug grin on his face. Norris looks at Mama and rolls his eyes. Uh, Mrs. Carlson. Norris stands up and walks toward Mama. He is holding a leather-bound notebook. WKRP in Cincinnati is, in my opinion, a loony bin. He tells Mrs. Carlson drastic immediate changes are in order. She asks, how so? Norris says her son is doing a fine job. Well, this surprises Mama. He is. But he's overworked. He is. The same goes for Herb Tarlick. It does. An excellent man who's trying to do it all himself. Really? The staff is a different matter. Bailey Quarters cannot be trusted with even the simplest of tasks for reasons I just assume not go into. He shoots Andy a look. This coming from the guy who was offering Andy lines of coke. He's worried about Bailey. Right. And the uh, receptionist, what's her name? Uh, Jennifer Marlowe. Is certainly beautiful, but has the IQ of a piece of furniture. <laughs> I was looking at Norris, confused. <laughs> this pretty much goes against everything Mama has ever known about Jennifer. I see. Total airhead. <laughs> Norris continues with his perception of WKRP. But this is minor alongside the racial unrest that exists between the disc jockeys. I think you should know that Venus Flytrap is armed. Norris looks seriously at Mama. I see. And Les Nessman? Funny. A kidder, but articulate and professional to the bone. <laughs> Oh, that's less all right. It seems to have worked. Norris bought 
the act. Well, they were all very good. They were. Mama is nodding her head. She points to Andy. And uh, Mr. Travis here. An old friend of mine. An excellent radio man. But I'm sorry to say, a little naive. Naive. She looks at Andy. Since Andy is controlling Norris like a puppet right about now, Mama may not be buying the (laughs) naive line. Andy gives an apologetic little look to Mama. Mama stands and thanks Norris. She asks him to wait outside while she speaks with Andy. Norris tells Mama he has some recommendations about these people. Mama tells Norris they will be talking later. Norris leaves the room. Norris shoots Andy a look as he's leaving. Andy waves. (laughs) (laughs) Andy's a little stinker. Mama sits on the arm of the couch and leans down to talk to Andy. You are a very, very bad boy. (laughs) Andy just gives Mama a look. Well, you know, it's kind of hard to get to know people in one day. I remember the That's first time. Mama sits up. Hirsch! Hirsch enters the room immediately. You've been eavesdropping. Oh, no, madam. <laughs> Very handy, as usual. Yeah. <laughs> Hirsch straightens into this great full attention pose, staring straight ahead. Mama asks Hirsch to escort Mr. Travis to the door. And watch him very carefully. Make sure he doesn't steal the doorbell. Andy stands to leave. As he walks out of the room, he gets in a request. Gonna need some more money. Out. Gotta go overspend on the lobby. Out. We'll talk later. Go. (laughs) (laughs) Hirsch puts his hand on Travis's back as they leave the room. Mama is left alone, sitting on the arm of the couch. Hirsch! One dry vodka martini, stirred, not shaken. Served in a peanut butter glass. (laughs) From out in the hallway, we hear... Where's Her Majesty? (laughs) And the screen goes black. The one question most people have after watching this episode is, what the heck's a peanut butter glass? Decorated peanut butter glasses were produced in the 1950s to sell commercially produced peanut butter. They were beautifully printed with colorful painted flowers, birds, dogs, and specialty images. They had the shape and dimensions of a water glass, not the squared off sides like a modern peanut butter jar. The glasses were given names, usually something like the name of the flower being depicted. Peanut butter glasses have attracted a huge group of collectors over the years. Check out Barbara Mousy's Peanut Butter Glasses Second Edition for 1,100 pictures of peanut butter glasses and all the details about collecting. That's going to do it for The Consultant. So much fun. Just that one crazy opposite scene at the station. Just that scene alone puts this one up there as a favorite episode for me. I was blown away by Jennifer's act. I thought she was hilarious. She really got to show off her humorous skills, her comedic acting. It was great. And just fun all the way around to get everybody in on the scam. So, Donna, what's up for next week? Programming note, fellow babies, we're taking the week off for Memorial Day, but we've still got something new for you. Have a safe holiday and be watching for a special rerun of Ask Jennifer. We've added an all-new interview with original Arlene herself, Eileen Barnett. 
Also, if you're doing lawn work, pop in those earbuds and go rerun some of your favorite WKRP cast episodes. So remember, that's Ask Jennifer with an all-new interview next week. Then we'll be back with a new episode on June 7th. You can't go out of town again. Arthur and Carmen attend his college reunion. Arthur finds out their first date was because someone dared her to go out with him. Bailey wants to get a computer for billing. Venus tries to impress a new date. That's going to do it for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along with us, make sure to check our show notes. Find us on social media. You can follow our Facebook page at WKRPCast. For more WKRP fun, become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash WKRPCast for behind-the-scenes fun, full interviews, and more. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us, wkrpcast at gmail.com. And remember to please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye now. May the good news be yours. The WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!